In the first place, the Holy Synod teaches and openly and simply professes that in the August Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and man, is truly, really, and substantially contained under the species of those sensible things. And because that Christ, our Redeemer, declared that which he offered under the species of bread to be truly his own body, therefore it has ever been a firm belief in the church of God, and of this holy synod doth now declare new, that by the consecration of the bread and of the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, which conversion is, by the Holy Catholic Church, suitably and properly called transubstantiation. Well, Reformation Day has come early for us this year. As we continue in Jesus' Bread of Life discourse, we come now to the most uncomfortable and confusing words of his entire sermon. But it might be surprising that the most uncomfortable and confusing words have perhaps become the most famous Words, the most often discussed words throughout church history. And perhaps the main reason they have become so popular, especially in the last 500 years plus, is because of the Roman Catholic Church's use of these words to establish their doctrine of transubstantiation. Let's see them. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 48 with me. John chapter 6, we're going to read verses 48 through 59 together. And when you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John 6, beginning in verse 48, thus saith the Lord, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. When a Roman Catholic goes to Mass and they partake of the Lord's Supper, they, like us, have to obviously eat of what we call the Eucharist, which is just the ancient historical name that was given for the elements of the Supper, namely the bread and the wine, although some people think of it as, as only the bread. Uh, but as we heard in our introduction from the Council of Trent, Roman Catholics do not believe that they are eating bread or drinking wine when they go to Mass. For they believe that those things, through the power of the priest, are transformed into Christ's literal, physical, real body. 
Now, typically, they don't use the words that I just used. They don't like to use the words like physical or literal because they think that maybe has connotations you wouldn't agree with. So they like to use words like substantial or corporeal rather than literal or physical. And, and without getting into the details, they do this because they have a, an idea, a philosophical idea that the substance of the bread transforms into Christ, but the accidents, or what the Council of Trent calls the species, do not change. So in other words, they agree with us that the Eucharist looks and will always look and feel and taste like bread, but it is actually not bread at all. It is only the body and blood of Christ. It is, in other words, not what it appears to be. For it has been entirely transformed into the real, historical, physical, literal body, blood, and soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And they support their understanding that the Eucharist is not Christ's body, or that the Eucharist is not Christ's body and blood symbolically, but actually and really and literally, with a handful of passages, but no doubt the most famous, the most important one they always turn to are these words in John chapter 6, especially verses 51 through 57. So let's read those together and, and, and sort of look at these texts through their eyes and through that lens, and it will actually make some sense, right? Look, beginning in verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Right? How could it be more clear, they ask? Christians are commanded to eat Christ's body and drink his blood. He doesn't say metaphorically eat me. He doesn't say symbolically eat me. He says you must feast, you must feed, you must chew on my flesh and drink my blood. And then you ask the question, if we're supposed to do these things, where do we do these things? How can this possibly be done if not in the Lord's Supper? For it was in the Supper that Christ held up the elements and said, this is my body. And you eat it. This is my blood. And you drink it. He doesn't say this symbolically represents my body. This is my body. This is my blood. Where else could we possibly feast on the ascended Christ if not in the Eucharist? And so they take this passage to be teaching us that we must come to the Lord's Supper where we must physically, literally, truly, substantially feed, eat on the body of Christ and drink his blood. Well, as you probably are suspecting, because our church holds to Reformed theology, we, with the Reformed tradition, reject transubstantiation. That's not a teaching of our church. We instead do, in fact, opt for a metaphoric or a symbolic reading of John chapter 6. As a matter of fact, we go so far to say John chapter 6 is not only metaphoric and symbolic, it's not about the Lord's Supper at all. It is not about the Eucharist. 
Now, why would we dismiss so lightly what seems to be such the plain, simple, obvious reading of the text, right? If we're just going with the plain face value literal reading, it seems that we have a tall task before us today. And that is my task today. My goal is to show you that John 6 is not only not about the Eucharist, it's not intended to be literal at all. The eating and drinking of John 6 is not a literal eating or drinking. And I plan to give you five reasons why you ought to read this text as a metaphor and not read it literally. But don't worry, we're not just going to talk about what the text doesn't mean. One of our reasons is going to be what the text does mean. So I assure you, we still are going to preach what the passage means and says. But we're going to do so in the context of also looking at what it is not saying. So without further ado, let's begin. Five reasons that the bread of life discourse is symbolic. Okay, Reason number one is because eating and drinking are necessary for salvation. The eating and drinking of John 6 are necessary acts in order to be saved. Look at verse 52 through 53 with me. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is very clear that a person has no life in them unless they first eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, we know he's not talking to about physical life because he's talking to people who are physically alive already. So this is clearly a reference to eternal life, to spiritual life. And Jesus is saying, unless you've already eaten me, Unless you've already drank my blood, you have no life. You must eat him in order to be saved. Now here's the problem. If this text is a reference to literally eating Christ in the Lord's Supper, then that means no human being is saved until they participate in the Eucharist. But here's the catch. No Christian tradition in the world thinks that. Well, you could debate maybe Eastern Orthodox Church, maybe some of the Eastern churches, but none of the Western churches teach that a person cannot be saved until they come to the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, all of the Western churches unanimously teach the exact opposite, that you cannot come unless you already are saved. There, the Eastern world, Eastern Christianity has practiced what we refer to as pedo communion So they actually give... Uh, the Lord, the, the Eucharist to infants and babies. But the entire Western, all of the different traditions of the Western Christianity, Lutheranism, the Reformed Church, Anglicanism, Roman Catholicism, all of them have withheld the table from infants. They have made faith in Christ a mandatory prerequisite before you're allowed at the table. So in other words, you have to be saved before you can eat the body and blood of Christ. Rome goes so far. Rome takes even farther than we do. Rome not only doesn't allow you at the table unless you've been saved, which is why you have to, if you've committed a mortal sin, you have to go to confession before you can go to the Mass. Because you have a mortal sin which has made you lose your salvation, and you must get it back before you can partake of Christ, lest you defile Him. And so here's the amazing thing. Rome teaches that John 6 is about the Eucharist, but then they turn around and they don't teach that the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. You know what a Roman Catholic says to a person who's baptized? They're saved. If an infant is baptized, the infant is saved. 
Has the infant ever eaten the body of Christ? No. So they clearly believe that you can be saved and you must be saved long before you ever approach the table. But what does Jesus say about that? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This is why we know that these, the eating of the body of Christ in John 6 is not the same eating in the Eucharist because one is necessary for salvation and the other one isn't. Therefore, they cannot be the same thing. Jesus is not talking about eating his body in the Eucharist. And this relates sort of the other side of the coin, if you will, relates to our second reason. The second reason why you should take John 6 as a symbolic eating is because unbelievers cannot consume Christ in John 6. Non-Christians cannot partake of the body of Christ according to John 6. Look at verses 54 through 56 with me. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. If this passage is talking about a literal eating of his literal flesh, which happens in the Lord's Supper, then it is clear that through the Lord's Supper, through literal eating and drinking of the body of Christ, we have eternal life and we have union with him. Right? He says, unless you eat, then you have eternal life and I will raise you up. So the moment you eat Jesus and drink his blood, you have eternal life and he's going to raise you up one day. And then he even goes further to talk about language of union with Christ. He says, if anyone who has eaten me, I am in him and he is in me. And then he doubles down on that. And he goes, in the same way that I have life from the Father, the Father communicates his life to me. We talked about that eternal generation a few times. You will have life if you are in me. You will be connected to me in such an intimate way that my life will carry on into you. So if you eat me, you have eternal life and you have union with Christ. Now, here's the problem. What happens when an unbeliever comes into church and literally eats of the Eucharist? Do they have eternal life? Do they have union with Christ? If you take these words literally, then they do. If an atheist comes into this room and he's sitting there, he's like, this stuff is mumbo jumbo. I don't even want to be here. But then the Lord's Supper goes around. He's like, but I don't want people to know I'm an atheist. So I'm just going to partake. Does he have Christ in him and he is in Christ? Does he have life from Jesus through the Father? Does he have eternal life? The answer is no. He's an atheist. He's not saved. But Jesus says, if you eat me, you have these things. So the kind of eating that's happening in John 6 is an eating that unbelievers can't do. A non-Christian cannot be in Christ. Otherwise, the consequences of this are detrimental. What you're saying is that, yes, the unbeliever has eaten Christ and he now has union with Christ, but he isn't saved. You have separated salvation from the power of Christ. You have separated salvation from union with Christ. You have literally made Christ unable to save people. So you see, our doctrine in this church is that anybody who has union with Christ is saved. It can't, you can't not be. If you're in Christ, if Christ is in you and you're in him, you are saved. So an unbeliever cannot have Christ in him. Therefore, an unbeliever cannot eat Christ. But unbelievers can eat of the Eucharist. 
You just watch them. Just a physical eating. Unbelievers can eat of the Eucharist. They cannot do the eating of John 6. What does that mean? They're not the same thing. The great Augustine of Hippo made this very argument in his famous book, The City of God, quickly saying, they do not eat the body of Christ who are not the body of Christ. Unless you are the body of Christ already, you're not eating the body of Christ in the supper. Unbelievers cannot eat Christ, at least not the John 6 way, but they can eat of the Eucharist, so they're not the same thing. Jesus is not talking about the Eucharist. He's not talking about a literal eating. That's our second argument. Our third argument is that the literal reading is anachronistic. Big word there. The literal reading is anachronistic. Do you know what an anachronism is? The dictionary would provide you with like three or four different definitions, but they all basically say the same thing. One of them, for example, just to sound official, I put one in. One that is out of its proper or chronological order, especially a person or practice that belongs to an earlier time. So anachronism is essentially, if I can put it very, very simply, it's when you've confused timelines. It's when a person or a thing has been sort of transplanted into the wrong timeline. So let me give you uh, an example. Suppose I were to say, you know what? I don't believe that George Washington liked cars because every time I read about George Washington, he always travels by horseback. So he must have been really anti-car. Now, can you draw that conclusion? No, because it's anachronistic. Cars didn't exist in George Washington's day, so we can't know what he thought about them. You can't say he always rode horses, therefore he hated cars. They didn't even exist. It's, that's an anachronistic comparison. You've confused your timeline here. And what we're saying is that a literal reading of the Eucharist into John 6 is anachronistic. You know why? The Eucharist didn't exist yet. Jesus has not even instituted the Lord's Supper yet. He won't do that for, depending on the timeline, maybe another two years. How could Jesus be talking about something that doesn't even exist? The Lord's Supper doesn't exist at this moment that he said this. Now, obviously, Jesus is allowed to talk about future things. He prophesies future things. He can speak of things in the future. But the reason we don't think that can happen here is because we would argue it's pretty clear that whatever Jesus is calling these people to do is not something they have to wait two years to do. It's something they could do right then and there. Jesus is emphatically not saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So wait for two years, I'll institute the Lord's Supper, and then you can be saved. No, he's calling them to eat him right now. You can drink Christ's blood and you can eat his flesh at any time, in any place, and anywhere. You can even do it before the Lord's Supper even exists. That's how we know they're not the same thing. They emphatically are not the same thing. By the way, I can strengthen this argument by throwing in an interesting little detail. Of, our, of all four Gospels, guess which is the one Gospel that doesn't even record the event of Jesus establishing the Lord's Supper? John. The Lord's Supper, the institution of it, is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in John. So apparently, John is not nearly as interested in the sacrament as we want to impute it to here. How could John, anyway, just think about it from a literary standpoint. Why would John record a sermon that's apparently a, a, a reference to this um, future historical event and then he doesn't even record that historical event? It's just, it's just a reference to something that we, if you only had John, you wouldn't even know existed. 
It just, that betrays the literary themes of John. He's not talking, Jesus is not, in John's mind, Jesus is not talking about something that John won't even write down. He's talking about something that John has already been writing down over and over and over and over again, which you must believe in Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's point number five. We're still on point number three. Let's move to four now. The fourth reason that you should not interpret John 6 literally is that Jesus preaches the gospel through metaphors. John has already thematically established for us that Jesus is a big fan. He has a proclivity to teach spiritual truths through metaphoric language. Right? Let me just refresh your memory. Remember his message to Nicodemus? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So we already saw in John 3, Jesus used a physical language of having a second birth to describe a spiritual transformation. And notice the theme here. This is going to be important. Jesus teaches a spiritual truth through a physical metaphor and it confuses his listener. Nicodemus goes, how can this be? How can I be born again? Keep that in mind as we move to John chapter 4 where Jesus does it again with the woman at the well. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see all the parallels here to John chapter 6? Jesus in John 4 calls salvation living water. In John 6, he calls it living bread. He says that if you have water, you will have eternal life. He says that if you have bread, if you eat, you will have eternal life. Jesus compares the physicalness of the water to Jacob. That you could drink of that water and be thirsty again. Just like in John 6, he compares bread to the physical bread of the wilderness. Your fathers ate of that bread, but they got hungry again and they died. Do you see all the parallels here? And nobody reads John 3 literally. Nobody reads John 4 literally. But then when Jesus does the exact same thing two chapters later, suddenly, no, this is literal. John has already shown us again and again that Jesus loved to preach the gospel metaphorically. And by the way, notice how in all three events, the listener gets confused. Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? How can I enter into my mother's womb again? And the woman at the well says, where are you going to draw water? You don't even have something to draw with. What, are you going to build your own well like Jacob? You're just going to build a well right in front of me? Where do you get this water? They're confused. And what happens in John chapter 6? Look at verse 51 through 52 with me. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
How can I be born again? How can you draw water? How can I eat your flesh? All three times they're getting confused by Jesus' symbolic language. Just follow the themes of John. John 6 is not literal. It's like John 3. It's like John 4. It's a symbolic eating. It's a symbolic drinking. It's not a literal one. By the way, we, we also just see last point on this. Jesus is just the master of using his circumstances and turning them into the gospel. The woman is literally at a well trying to draw water to quench her thirst. And Jesus says, that's a gospel story in and of itself right there. Because you have a spiritual thirst. And you can draw my water and be quenched. The same thing can happen in John 6. These people were hungry. Jesus gave them bread. They asked about the man in the wilderness. And so Jesus turned their hunger and their desire for bread into a metaphor. You want bread? I'll give it to you. It's my sacrifice. Eat me and you will have your hunger satisfied. It is following the themes of John. This is just Jesus being Jesus. <laughs> He's a master. But that leads us to our fifth, and this is really our, our most important point, because up to this point, all we've done is say what the text doesn't say. And that's not really my job as a preacher, is it? There's a million things it's not saying. But we can use what the text is saying as an argument in itself. In other words, the reason we know that Jesus is not speaking about a literal eating or about the Eucharist is because he is speaking about faith. Argument number five, Jesus is speaking about faith. We know that the bread of life discourse is not about the Eucharist because we know what it is about, which is faith. And I've got multiple ways to show you this. Number one, it's been established in the context already. Jesus is using eating and drinking as symbols of coming to him and believing in him. We eat by faith. We drink by belief. By the way, to quote him again, Augustine shared this interpretation with us. In his commentary on John 6, he has these very poetic, simple words. Wherefore, the Lord said that himself was the bread that came down from heaven, exhorting us to believe in him. For to believe in him is to eat the living bread. How do you eat Jesus in John 6, according to Augustine? You believe in him. That's how you eat him. To believe is to eat. Now, what would lead theologians like our church and Reformed theologians and Augustine to not read these literal sounding words literally? Why would we see these as actually a call to faith? Well, again, I've got a few reasons for them. One of the first reasons is we can make this comparison because both of these actions produce the same effects. What happens from last week? What happens when you believe eternal life? What happens when you eat? Eternal life. The shared effects teaches us that they're the same thing. The one is an explanation of the other. Let me just show you a comparison of, of what I'm talking about. So this is uh, some, from verse 53. We read this in our text today. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Listen, look at how that parallels with the context from last week. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Right? Truly, truly, if you do this, you have eternal life. If you believe, if you eat, eating and believing must be the same thing. 
because they're producing the same effect. An even stronger comparison, we read verse 54 today. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Compare this with verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the same thing. Eating is believing. Drinking is faith. These passages parallel each other for this very reason. Now, if you're not convinced by the parallelism, then that's fine. Just look with me at verse 35, where I think Jesus explicitly tells us the metaphor before he even breaks into the metaphor. Look at verse 35. This is from the context from last week. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is mixing the gospel with the metaphor here, right? Because what, grammatically, what should he be saying? Whoever eats me shall not hunger. Whoever drinks me shall not thirst. But he doesn't say that. Faith is what cures your hunger. Belief is what cures your thirst. Do you see how the metaphor is being brought into the literal gospel message? Faith in Christ is how you eat. That's why it satisfies your hunger. Belief in Christ is how you drink. That's why it satisfies your thirst. So verse 35 is explicit. Jesus is telling us, what does it mean to eat him? Come to him. What does it mean to drink his blood? Believe in him. Again, eating is believing. Jesus is talking about faith. The entire context is about faith. You go all the way back to the beginning. You could go all the way back to verse 22 when this whole sermon began. And you will see from verses 22 all the way up to verse 51, Jesus doesn't say a word about eating him. All he talks about is faith. This is the work that you must do. The work my father has called you to do. To believe in him whom he has sent. Though everyone who comes to me, I will raise up. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And this is the will of my Father. Whoever believes in the Son shall have eternal life. And All the way through the entire sermon, Jesus is just talking about faith, 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 faith. And so really the onus is on the literalist to show me where in the sermon does Jesus go, okay, I'm done talking about faith now. We're going to change gears and I'm going to talk about a different action, something else you have to do to be saved, and that's eating and drinking. You see the way it breaks the harmony of the sermon up? Jesus' sermon is one sermon with one continuous idea. It's not two mini-sermons crammed into one. Here's a little mini-sermon about faith. Here's a little mini-sermon about the Eucharist. You've got to do both of them to be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to believe in me to be saved. And I can explain that literally or metaphorically. The entire sermon is about faith. Every last part of it is about coming to Christ and believing in his sacrifice. Now, here's how we have to end, because this does bring up a good question. If Jesus has started off so clear, why did he feel the need to get so confusingly cannibalistic? Why even go there? Especially, as we saw, it confused his readers. They're, They're misinterpreting him. Why wouldn't Jesus say, whoa, 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 guys, 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 you're misunderstanding me. I'm not talking about literally eating my flesh. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And he doubles down. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat it, you have no life. <laughs> Why would Jesus be? It's like, it's like he's being intentionally obscure. If this isn't literal, then isn't Jesus kind of unnecessarily being unclear on purpose? And you know what my answer is to that? Yes. 
Keep your marker here. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Why did Jesus feel the need to break into this metaphor at all if he's been so clear about the gospel up to this point? Matthew 13. We're going to read verses 10 through 17 together. Matthew chapter 13, 10 through 17. This is after Jesus tells a parable. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not, even he, what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and do not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Now, I wanted to read that entire thing, but what's most important is this very beginning where Jesus explicitly says, why do I speak in parables? It's a good question. Like, the disciples are thinking, like, you want these people to be saved. Why are you talking in metaphors and stories and parables? Like, why, why not just be clear? Just, just say what you mean and mean what you say. Just be as clear as you possibly can be. And Jesus says, I'm not trying to be clear. These people, it was not been given to them to know these things. And he even goes on to say, they have forfeited their privileged clarity. He says, even what a person has, it will be taken away. Because of their hardness of heart. Because of their unbelief. Because it has not been given them to know. So here's what Jesus is saying about parables. These people are given something precious. They're given a gospel message. And they squander it through unbelief and hardness of heart. So Jesus says, I'm going to take it back. I gave you the gospel and you squandered it. So what has been given will be taken back. I'm taking the gospel away from you. And how does he take the gospel away? He doesn't like Superman fly up and spin backward in the world in reverse and go back in time. How do you unpreach the gospel to someone? You confuse the message. He's confusing them on purpose as a judgment for squandering the precious gift that they were given. This amazing gospel message, the best story in the world, one that the prophets and the, and, the, and the angels have all been looking to know. They've been given it. And they disbelieve and they harden their hearts toward it and they hate it. And so Jesus says, I'm going to take it away. And he takes it away by intentionally confusing them and intentionally offending them. That's why I speak in parables. It has not been given to them to know. Now, John 6 is not a parable. But I think that this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus was crystal clear about the gospel in the beginning of his message. They straight up asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? And what was Jesus' answer? He didn't go on some long sermon about eating his flesh and drinking his blood or digging a well and drinking water. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
This is the will of my Father, that all who look to the Son and believe will be saved, and I will raise them up. Jesus has been crystal clear about who he is and what he had came to do. And what did they do every single time? They grumbled. And they complained. And so Jesus says, I'm done with the clarity. It's time to push them away. And so he intentionally breaks into a, a, a very offensive metaphor. I don't think you realize how offensive this would be to Jewish people. The Jewish law was very clear. You are not allowed to drink blood. They had a whole ritualistic way of how to sacrifice an animal to make sure all the blood drained out. You are not allowed, according to God's law, to drink blood. And here comes Jesus saying, you better drink my blood or you'll go to hell. The Jews were not allowed to touch dead bodies. If you touched a dead body, you were unpure, you are impure, you were not allowed to worship. You were not allowed to go to worship unless you purified yourself. You couldn't touch dead bodies. And here comes Jesus saying, you better eat my body. Chew it up and swallow it. This would have been incredibly offensive to this people. And he's doing it on purpose. They have lost their right to clarity. And we know this why. It has not been given to them to know. They have not been given to the Son. And so I speak to those of us who are not unbelievers bearing the judgment of God. To those of us to whom it has been given to understand. We ought to understand John 6 as a symbolic teaching about our need to have a saving union with the incarnate Christ who died for our sins. It is what I like to call soul food. It is an invitation to come to Christ by faith and to be spiritually nourished forever. It is an eating that we do by faith. Just as, I've quoted him twice already, let's end with Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo asks, To what purpose do you make ready teeth and stomach? Believe, and you have eaten already.